Dear everyone, welcome to the fourth of our Tachayil Nativeness and Emergent Issues podcast series organized by the members of the ERC project named Tachayil at the UCL's Institute for Global Prosperity, the IGP. I am Sertaj Sehikolu, primary investigator of this five-year project. The need to this podcast series emerged due to a number of reasons. Firstly, the members of this team as many of you may already be familiar, are often native scholars who have expertise about the very geographies they have grown up in. The project is carried in 11 different countries in Eastern Europe, the Middle East and South Asia, often referred to as the Global South. That being said, those very contexts are more vulnerable to global changes and crises, as we have seen in a number of events that took place in the last six months, including the flood catastrophe in Pakistan, a result of the global warming. Thus, the members of this team have suggested to create a platform where we can address the emergent issues as they happen with other scholars, intellectuals, and activists. The fourth of our podcast series is put together in the aftermath of the earthquake that created a catastrophic damage in Turkey and in Syria. Marked as the most significant earthquake of the century, the long-lasting effects of these multiple earthquakes is yet to be known. As a project team, we wanted to have a conversation about global precarities and catastrophe with this podcast. And for this, I have the privilege of hosting three amazing friends and colleagues who are quite significant with the way they're able to pour their hearts and minds into what they do, what they author, and how they think, in the way the terms intellectual, scholar, and or activists do not feel enough. Dr. Asla Zengin is an assistant professor in the Department of Women's, Gender and Sexuality Studies at Rutgers University, New Brunswick. Her research lies at the intersection of ethnography, of queer and trans lives and deaths, medical legal regimes of sex and gender and sexuality, critical studies of violence and sovereignty, as well as transnational aspects of LGBTQ movements in the Middle East, with a special focus on Turkey. She's also a queer feminist and has been involved in the feminist solidarity group for disaster in Turkey since the February 6th, the earthquake. Dr. Omar Al-Ghazi is an associate professor in the Department of Media and Communications at LSE. He works on the geopolitics of global communications, particularly in relation to news, media and popular culture. He is interested in political contestation of narratives around digital technologies, as well as of representations of time and memory, with a focus on the Middle East and North Africa. Dr. Sumin Kalya is a political anthropologist and part of our Tachayil project research team at the UCL's Institute for Global Prosperity. She studies political Islam and civil society while placing them in the broader framework of political culture. Her research deploys ethnographic tools to explore cultural and social processes which shape political activism in South Asia. Dr. Kalia's project at Tahayul examines the role of imagination in generating expectations and actions for the future. So without further ado, I'd like to turn to Dr. Asl Zengin. Dr. Zengin, I'd like to start with you, as I believe you have been in the region that was hit by the earthquake as part of a feminist solidarity group. Thank you, Sartaj, Zishan and Hazal for organizing this very important roundtable. 
Today, I'm not going to speak as an academic, but as a queer activist who has been involved in feminist relief efforts for the earthquake in Turkey. I will try to explain why feminism significantly matters as a response to disasters, because disasters reveal and intensify already existing relations of power and forms of discrimination and exclusion. Gender and sexual discrimination is one of them. The recent disaster in Turkey, Kurdistan and Syria has once again shown that women, queer and trans people are among those who shoulder the harshest costs of the earthquake. I will briefly lay out the gendered, sexual and racialized fault lines that have deepened the impact of this catastrophe. And then I will summarize our relief efforts as the Feminist Solidarity Group for Disaster in Istanbul. Since day one, uh, we have been working together uh, with two major Kurdish women's organizations in Diyarbakir, the Rosa Women's Association and the Free Women's Movement, TGA, who have shown strong presence, in, especially in the absence of the state in the earthquake zone and in the face of women's dismissal for their particular situation and needs. Through our conversation today, I would also like to call on an international feminist uh, solidarity and support. I went to Adiyaman for a week with a group of feminists. In Adiyaman, thousands had deserted their city. Standing buildings were abandoned. There were no lights in the city. Many of the poorest had to remain in the city center. This impoverished population was also strongly divided by racialized lines. For example, Roma communities and Syrian refugees were at the bottom of this hierarchy and had limited access to camps and relief centers. People whose buildings were slightly or moderately damaged had pitched tents in the area next to their apartments, surveying potential thieves and protecting their household furniture, goods and other valuable items. These were the only valuables uh, some people had managed to save after long years of work. The situation was even harsher in certain villages where survivors migrated from hard-hit city centers and took shelter in their extended family members' damaged houses or tents in the gardens. Some villagers had to sleep in barns with their animals. Among the villages we visited, some tents or houses hosted four to five families from Adiyaman city center. In these households, women and girls were responsible for domestic chores and sustenance of life itself. This gendered uh, division of labor was largely invisible. Our friends who worked in the rubbles during the first week uh, after the earthquake uh, stressed that it was heartbreaking to find women in children's room next to their beds, while men were found nearby the exit door. Many women's initial response was to first rescue their children rather than themselves. Another issue that risked women's lives was the gendered dress code. Because the earthquake caught everyone in their sleep, some women with nightgowns refrained from stepping outside before wearing their headscarves and changing their clothes. So women died or risked their lives because of religious and moral expectations about their bodily displays in public. And men did not necessarily have to deal with similar expectations at the moment of the earthquake. So they could not change their clothes and underwear, like women in general. They could not change their clothes or underwear since the moment of the earthquake. Lack of water, soap and detergent made it impossible for them to maintain their hygiene. Some of them had started developing health problems. 
In the first weeks, it was hard to find the private space to change their clothes, especially. And in one of the villages, a young woman mentioned that all village women had their menstruation at the same time the day after the earthquake. They could not find any menstrual pads. When initial relief materials arrived, they could find diapers for babies and toddlers, but no pads for themselves. So they used baby diapers during their menstruation. They had difficulty also talking about and asking for their needs with month. So in response to, the, to these um, emergency circumstances, we organized the Purple Track campaign for two cities, Adiyaman and Antakya. The idea of Purple Track was first raised by Kurdish women who were working in the earthquake zone. They themselves were impacted by the earthquake in Diyarbakir. At the same time, they were the first ones to show up for emergency relief efforts, canvassing with women in neighboring towns impacted by the earthquake to understand uh, their specific needs. As feminists in Istanbul, we started holding a series of meetings to immediately participate in these relief efforts. While a group of us had already traveled to the earthquake zone to work in the rubbles in the first week of the earthquake, the rest of us initiated the Purple Truck campaign for Adiyaman first. Based on daily updates from the city, we revised the list of emergency items to be transported to Adiyaman. Our campaign uh, was based on raising public awareness about these women-specific needs and storing item-specific donations in three main locations in Istanbul. These items uh, included hygiene kits, menstrual pads, wet wipes, diapers for kids, slippers, underwear, clothing, wash bowls, broom, soap, shampoo, detergent, toilet tissue, paper towel, box of assorted grain, veggie oil, and flour and also colored books and toys for children. Once we filled up the truck, it departed from Istanbul on February 21st. Uh, on the same night, a group of us also took a flight to Adiyaman to distribute women and the items according to a designated list of neighborhoods and villages. Friends uh, who remained in Istanbul started the organization of the second Purple Truck campaign, this time for Antakya Samanda. Until the arrival of our Purple Track campaign, many women mentioned to us in Adiyaman that nobody else had either recognized or prioritized their needs. We also established a women's tent in the Adiyaman campsite, which was organized under the coordination of the Pro-Kurdish People's Democratic Party, HDP. And this campsite uh, was unique in terms of its inclusive politics towards the survivors, regardless of their sectarian, religious and ethnic identities. For instance, while most Syrians were denied tents in other camps, here one fifth of the tents were allocated for them. Every sign in the campsite was also written in Kurdish, Arabic, and Turkish. This inclusive attitude towards social difference also uh, made this campsite a safe space for our feminist, queer, and trans presence. In the campsite, the gender division of labor mapped itself onto the tent life. Child and elderly care, reproduction of household, and emotional and physical labor were all uh, on women's shoulders. There was no space of escape for women in tents. They had a tendency to spend most of their day in these tents without having a time of their own and socializing with other women. Mostly men dominated the common spaces in the camp, 
uh, making it difficult for women to claim and use the spaces for their own social needs. Because of the circumstances, it was very important to create a space for women, queers and trans people where they could feel safe and comfortable without family and social pressure. At the beginning, when we pitched the tent, the women's tent, it attracted only a few women. Then we started visiting the tents in the camp and informing women about the tent. As days went by, many women became more aware of the space and told their friends, neighbors, and other women from their extended families. They started to visit our tent regularly to claim some leisure time for themselves and talk with us and each other. Our efforts in the women's stand uh, usually orient around creating a momentary cycle of joy and pleasure, a material and sensual moment of normalcy that used to exist prior to the earthquake. These are small moments of escape from the harsh reality and the responsibilities women have to shoulder, but they still matter. We need to maintain the space in the long term, and uh, many women were highly enthusiastic in the immediate aftermath of the earthquake, and they showed their great willingness to donate, spend time in Adiyaman, or participate in other relief activities. These numbers, however, uh, have started decreasing compared to the first weeks of the disaster, so it's important to also receive international feminist support now. You can contact us via afetichinfeministar uh, at gmail.com. I think it's going to be posted on the website when this video recording is also posted. And you can learn more about the specific forms of uh, support you could provide if you contact this email address. And then you can also follow us on our social media account at afetichinfeminist. And I guess I'm going to stop here and maybe we can continue to discuss more during the Q&A. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you very much, Dr. Zengin. I just want to kind of remind everyone also that the the detailed information is going to be available on the podcast and the channel uh, UCL Minds, under which Tahay Nativeness series. Thank you very much. And without further ado, Omar Algazi, Dr. Algazi. Thank you. Um, thank you for the organizers um, and, you know, for for giving us the opportunity to to discuss this painful and, and important topic and, and discussion. And I, I will uh, perhaps uh, start with with n- noting the importance of a, of a feminist approach and kind of echoing what um, what Asa was was saying, um, not because I'm uh, like I've been on the ground or or kind of uh, following the the immediate aftermath, but as uh, an academic who is interested in in Syria and the region more broadly, I note the the problem of how the region is continuously talked about in relation to geopolitics and military kind of changes and, and advances that really erases the struggles of people. The scale of the disaster like really shows, you know, like how the geopoliticization of everything to do with Syria in particular really works against people. And, the, and part of this is, is the problem of, of punditry as well, like the, the people whose 
whose voices are the loudest in commenting on on the disaster. They speak about kind of shifts in the uh, power between different uh, states, between militias, and you know what this would kind of tell us about the about the Middle East international relations. And and this continues to to work against the people, erasing their their struggles and and priorities, and and adding insult to injury to to everything you know that's unfolding in in Syria. And like while you know the I don't know I find it actually quite difficult to to talk about it because I think I think the the scale of the disaster particularly when it comes to Syria is really is really difficult to put in words just the 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 very idea that there are some people who um, who have been stuck under the rubble multiple times before due to bombings and and currently due to an, an earthquake in, in northwest Syria you know when you read the the stories of of people and and individuals and you know how the, the the pain and the trauma that that they carry I think it becomes really difficult to actually understand or or even put in words the pain that that um, entails in in loss of uh, of loved ones and you know what what bodies bodies of survivors continue to carry from injury to to uh, like physical injuries to psychological um, injuries but certainly when it comes to the to the natural disaster there is of course the the earthquake is a natural phenomenon but the layers of uh, how how it it like the the kind of injustices the layers of of injustice that unfold um, are very much political even even the very idea of um, like the, the the structural integrity of of buildings of course there's been just a lot of uh, coverage about about turkey in relation to um, urban planning and permits and corruption and so forth in syria in addition to that layer there's also the the structural vulnerability of of buildings in areas that have been bombed uh, for years during the war by the regime by by the Russian military um, as well, and you know, being kind of um, scenes of um, of conflict and warfare more more broadly. So there is that layer that made so many buildings in the poorest areas. Let's say when we talk about cities like a city like Aleppo in the working class areas of Aleppo, but also in in villages and towns across the northwest of Syria. And there is kind of the the, uh, additional layers of of thinking about the impact of um, sanctions, for example, again, again, an an aspect that usually is only, um, there's only interest in it in relation to kind of the use of sanctions as a as a political and geopolitical tool, but we know that sanctions never work in the the way that they're intended and they're cruel measures um, when it comes to how they impact people. In kind of the punditry around the sanctions, the technicalities of of how it unfolded during the. Um, during the aftermath of the of the earthquake dominated but um i think to think about it more broadly is also important and and there are examples how it made the lives of syrians much more difficult including the ability of um of syrians to transfer money to their uh, syrians abroad the syrian diaspora to transfer money 
to their families um, within the the geography of Syria, but also the ability of, of NGOs to um, to work to work um, within. And of course, the earthquake only made um, issues of poverty, of um, the the uh, of health, of public health, of um, safety. All these, all these aspects of the biopolitics of, of life, basically about you know the ability to survive and and carry on, um, have been made so much worse. So there, there is you know we we haven't even talked about let's say military strikes that happen in the aftermath of the earthquake. Israel bombed um, Damascus on February 19, you know days after. The earthquake um, happened in, in the country and, and bombed Aleppo um, on March 7. And there, um, there were civilian casualties. In Damascus, 15 people died and many more people lost their homes. And, and to think that such bombing a country that has just gone through an, an earthquake, like it really, you know, I think we have to like stop and, and think about think about that, like how... And and how that passes as if it's just uh, it's just another you know like episode in the in the unfolding uh, geopolitical crisis or and without like without really thinking of of how kind of depraved the 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 morality and and kind of respect to human life that that entails to have people made homeless you know weeks a week not even a week after a country is hit by by an earthquake. And and that also uh, includes the um, the Syrian uh, regime. Like the north northwest Syria was in fact actually bombed by the Syrian military in the aftermath of the um, of the earthquake, and f- there was fighting between uh, between militias and and um, the army there. Um, so like there is, it's there is this added layer that makes it um, even more kind of like. Uh, uh, like d- difficult to really think of of the scale of what people there must be must be going through the politics of aid distribution that was very much again like a political a geopolitical football um, the Syrian regime saw the earthquake as a chance to get legitimacy on the international stage and seek um, normalization of ties with um, with different governments. And we're already seeing a lot of movement in that regard, with uh, particularly within, um, within Arab countries, uh, kind of recognizing the Syrian regime and um, re-initiating kind of diplomatic recognition after years of boycott. But even, even how NGOs are subject to uh, various kinds of campaigns within, within Syria, um, to discredit um, non-regime uh, affiliated organizations, start rumors around them that they're actually stealing money from the West and not doing anything to help people. So instead of even allowing, you know, any sort of, of um, aid and improvement of, of the lives of, of people or allowing organizations to, to operate, they these organizations find themselves having to Kind of face um, campaigns online um, against them, rumors against them. Already, we see a lot of uh, politics around reconstruction and urban planning in areas that are are dealt with by by the state as as conflict zones and areas you know that there there is an interest in a kind of uh, 
rearrangement of, of uh, urban life. Um, so already that has that has been uh, kind of uh, part of the of the contention and and struggle that's um, that's happening, especially when um, foreign uh, governments um, like Iran, for example, are involved in the kind of in, in giving money to um, to urban reconstruction um, initiatives. Um, and even even within the Syrian regime, there are reports of of kind of competition between different figures to appear to be kind of to be giving uh, to giving aid. Um, and and that that is kind of talking about the situation in, in Syria. If we talk about Syrians in um, in Turkey uh, already, I think Asla mentioned kind of the discrimination against against Syrians. And actually, given all what I just said about how dire things are in Syria, there are many Syrians in Turkey who went back to Syria because they after they became homeless, they just found it really difficult to to stay in Turkey, to navigate kind of their their safety, to get aid within Turkey. And I know from acquaintances and, and friends that it was very difficult for Syrians to actually stay in many camps in, in the affected areas or even even move to other um, safe areas within within Turkey. So the, the kind of the, the racism was somehow like exacerbated and, and justified justified with with what happened and just to um, conclude um, like this kind of thinking about the situation is is again to to bring up that issue of of how in the general framing of what's happening uh, in the region as as a whole there is kind of um, what I think is a is a sickening level of selective solidarity. And there really needs to be kind of a, a reframing of even the nation state focus in, in that sense. Because if we look at the region as a whole, we also cannot neglect what's happening um, in in Syria in regime and you know um, rebel rebel um, areas. Um, so there is a commonality in in kind of the uh, the experiences of the the kind of all these layers of tragedy that I've been talking about, but also in uh, in Lebanon, for example, with the economic collapse, and in Palestine, we cannot forget also the the struggle that Palestinians continue to to embark on with kind of the the unprecedented or not we say unprecedented, but it's really the escalating kind of attacks that they are facing across Palestine and particularly in the in the West Bank. Thank you. Thank you very much, Omar. Actually, before we move on to Sumrin, who's going to tell us a little bit about this huge earthquake that took place in 2005, I think uh, the scale was 8.1. And what was done and what could have been done since then in Pakistan? I want to say that there are a number of elements that I kind of, as a chair, I'm, I'm feeling this urge of talking about. So I'm going to hold my horses uh, move on with Sumrin, and then we will start the Q&A. It's a sad juncture that we are having to come across these kind of difficult conversations at quite a quick succession. Just uh, two months ago, we were talking about the Pakistani earthquake, which also created such a huge disaster across the country. Right now, talking about Turkish and Syrian uh, earthquake, I feel like sometimes it's important to reflect back on uh, things that have happened before, 
and these tragedies in, that occurred before. So basically, I'm going to talk about the Pakistani earthquake. It's been a long time, 2005 it was, about 18 years ago. Somehow we can have like a longer durée understanding of the consequences these kind of intense human tragedies can bring. Well, I'll begin with mostly a brief idea of what actually happened and who were the real actors on the ground, where my focus will remain mostly on this politics of aid, and then how in the long term this politics of aid actually turns out. So this earthquake was about 8.2 Richter scale on October 8th, and the major areas affected were the northern areas and Kashmir, the Pakistan-administered Kashmir, and also the Indian-occupied Kashmir. More than uh, 100,000 people died, and more than 140,000 people were injured. And uh, cities were completely flat, like Balakota city was completely in rubbles. There were people cut off without any kind of access. No government, no agencies, no doctors were there for quite a long time. And the earthquake displaced 3.5 million people and an estimated 1.6 million people went without adequate food supply. And there were long-term also effects of the earthquake, which I'm going to talk about a little bit later. But the um, Pakistanis actually came in a lot. By they mobilized, the biggest amount of mobilization for support came from Pakistanis themselves. And people just in a week's time, about 1.7 billion rupees were collected in the, the President's Relief Fund and $360 million were received from abroad. But then we need to talk about the context in which this earthquake takes place. At that time, Pakistan was being under, under the rule of the military government of Musharraf. And we were also, the country was also one of the frontline states of the U.S. war on terror. So the military was fighting the Afghan Taliban on the other side of the border. And because of its uh, stronghold within the country and uh, also beyond, in the relief efforts, the military maintained managed to be the only major actor. And all the other um, people who were coming for support, international NGOs or even the local ones, they were, uh, re- they were relying heavily on the military to access the earthquake hit areas. And uh, there was no national uh, disaster management authority at the time. Uh, local government institutions were also absent. So which is why the whole relief uh, and rescue work was largely in the control of the military. What happened because of the Pakistan's uh, geostrategic position at the time as a front light state, Pakistan did get uh, immense support from the U.S. and the NATO military forces. The international community overall had a poor response, although, in fact, initially, even the United States was not very supportive. But again, going back to the, um, so the military was one actor. The other actors were these uh, um, international NGOs, which were relied on the military. And there was a third actor also, which um, actually created a lot of, uh, which was around which a lot of noise was created in the international media. And that was Jamaat Dawa, an Islamist organization, which had uh, connections to jihadist groups within Kashmir. And there was a lot of criticism on the role of Jamaat al-Dawa at the time. But what we keep forgetting is that when such crises happen, you need infrastructure. Somehow, uh, the mosques networks are so much wider, even more than the local government ones, institutions, that they end up being the main way, main locations from where these kind of rehabilitation activities can be carried out. But in the long run, what happened to all these three actors? I'll begin with Musharraf, the military. 
Within three years, military rule was ousted in 2008. The Islamists also lost their support, voted out when the democracy came in. And the U.S. image worsened. It didn't really get any better. And U.S. US was seen more as a fair with a friend because it was seen that AIDS programs have much more to do with buying or renting influence related to Pakistani military and promote U.S. security interests rather than helping Pakistanis. As a social response in the long term, it was hugely difficult to build back. More than 7,000 public schools just in the Muzaffarabad district were destroyed. Not even half of them have been rebuilt even though 18 years have passed. And children who were under the age of three at the time of the earthquake accumulated huge height deficits and scored significantly bad on academic tests. But on the other hand, this earthquake also resulted in the creation of NDMA, which was like the National Disaster Management Authority. It was created in 2007, in which uh, it was decided that all armed forces and NGOs and agencies will work through the NDMA to conduct all kinds of operations. Since the earthquake was a little bit in, it was in this contested territory of Kashmir, a little bit influence from the India was rather a good surprise because India supported and helped in the rehabilitation efforts, despite the fact that the peace bridge, which was opened just a year before the earthquake happened, was also destroyed in the earthquake. But the earthquake actually managed to ease the tensions across the border. But in the longer run, as I said, all those actors who were active in the relief efforts, did not receive any long-term advantage. In fact, because may, partly majorly because of their failure to provide um, adequate support, they accumulated more blame than credit. And uh, we can actually then see, perhaps understand what might be the long-term effects in terms of the political geopolitics, the local politics, in the aftermath of certain these tragedies and also the geopolitics that um, Omar has been talking about. Thank you. Thank you very much, Sumrin. Before we are starting the Q&A, I want to say a couple of things, if that's okay. First of all, this particular podcast was extremely difficult for the team members to put together. As Zishan Kukar, Hazalayden and myself, we have been kind of trying to find a way to make ourselves useful which is also one of the reasons why I kind of wanted Aslı Zengin on this platform today as somebody who was active and was doing a lot more than we could. But we were torn apart between trying to make ourselves useful while following the news. Uh, and I want to kind of clarify what it means to be following the news as a Turkish person in the first couple of days, first two weeks That also meant that we were able to follow in our mother tongue live tweets sent from under the rubbles by the survivors whose voices later on was silenced one by one. Like its effect was quite enormous, its, its emotional effect. And therefore, putting together this one from the day one, we were like, do we have the energy? Do we have not have the energy? But I think it all goes back to the very title we ended up putting to the Tahir Nativeness and, and Emergent Issues series, because um, Omar uh, said something uh, about voice, right? Whose voice is being heard in the aftermath of such disasters. That's one of the things... We are obviously dealing with 11 countries. We are from those countries as the Tahayul team. And things are happening 
in the global south on those contexts. And then we would be finding ourselves in situations where we are listening to the accounts of so-called experts of the region. And we need to do a couple of things. One is we need to make ourselves to, I mean, use this as a solidarity platform and, and, and have our conversations as the natives but also change the very genre, the very rhetoric of this expertise conversations, like too professional. We can't be too professional in times like this, and we shouldn't expect extreme professionality, which only comes from position of privilege. I wanted to kind of state these as, as the chair of today's conversation and turn to Hazal's question. Hazal asks in the chat box, how should we discuss the Turkish state's inability to solve this crisis? Is it just failed state bureaucracy slash corruption? Or are we seeing a form of necropolitics, a selective let's live and let die? Uh, I think this is directed to Dr. Zengin. The state is definitely necropolitics. Uh, and I don't think the state is failing. I think the state is using its all kind of technical structure to accumulate the resources in one hand and preventing people from just distributing solidarity and support resources. Like, for example, what we have witnessed in this particular crisis was this hyper-ultra-centralization of the state that ends up in one person's decision. So, so many people died under the rubble because all those rescue teams were waiting for a signed paper, a signed authority from Erdogan, going back to the, all the way to Erdogan. So this kind of you know, centralization blocks so many people from accessing people and rescuing them from under the rubble. For, for example, there were miners who were very well trained. They are the most uh, equipped group of people who could go into the rubble and save people. They have all the technical information, but they were just kept at airports for hours and days uh, rather than being sent to these particular destinations of the earthquake. Or the army was not used, put into force to actually also facilitate these kinds of uh, relief efforts, rescue efforts, because of just this one man is making all these decisions. So in that sense, I don't think it's a failed state. It's a very strong state, but it's just operating in a way that we don't like it to operate. This doesn't allow any space for civil society organizations or any kind of opponent parties to create their own kind of, you know, solidarity networks, which we all did in one way or other, but under the pressure of the government, because the government was also appropriating so much relief materials while we were trying to transfer them from one place to the other. Or there was so much corruption and the corruption becomes another kind of economy that the state facilitates in this in these moments of crisis. So this is one one answer, but the other one is the necropolitics part. It's a very long answer. I have so much to tell about this, even just with the single example of this person who couldn't produce a debt document for her parents under the rubble, but the, the late signals from their parents' phone was detected under these rubbles. But then when the machines came in and excavated the rubbles, they couldn't find anyone. So there was no one to be found under the rubble. So they couldn't be listed as dead. But the person, the child, knows that her parents are dead. So like you get to see all the thrilling examples of necropolitics unfolding as a state structure through its bureaucracies. So, or just, you know, people had to die because of the prevention of other civil society organizations. So the state actually let people die under the rubble. I think it's a very strong state with a very strong political agenda uh, and a structure, I would say, but I don't want to take up so much time because it's a very long conversation. There are so many examples, but I want to also hear from my friends as well. 
Thank you. Thank you, Dr. Zengin. Dr. Al-Ghazi, do you want to add anything to this from your observations and expertise from Syria? No, I think, I think you know, what, what uh, Asa said covers it. Thanks. Then if I may, I actually do have a question to everyone, but beginning with you, I guess. And that is, so when you were speaking, I was thinking about, I think you used the phrase, how did this just pass as an, just another episode? And this was something I've been kind of feeling and observing quite a lot. Not only, you know, how Israel was attacking the region just days after the earthquake, but also how the news about this entire earthquake, that, that was obviously quite a kind of catastrophic one, just as one of the many miseries of the Middle East, as if somehow Middle Eastern people are ontologically equipped to experience and, and live violence, let alone catastrophe. And I know your your work, actually, your entire scholarship deals with whose narratives are heard, how the narratives are changed. But I was kind of thinking quite a bit since the earthquake and as a scholar who's living in the UK about the notion, the kind of concept of voice quite a lot, right? And this is the angle I was thinking that, you know, you might want to add a couple of notes to, because whether, so having a voice is not whether you are making yourself heard, whether that voice gets into somebody else's ears, but also whether you have power over your own narrative whether you are just a bystander or when you are telling your narrative, it's used as something else or it's silence or it's negligible. And, and then it's kind of, it was also connected back to something you said even earlier in your, in your talk, adding another injury, like just to this. I, I just wanted to kind of point this out, whether you want to, well, all of you actually um, want to add anything about how we think about certain parts of the world and we all know that there, like, there are precarities attached to, you know, a range of parts of the global south. But we also know that those precarities exist because of the global power dynamic. Um, yeah, like I think in terms of um, in terms of voice, I think the the language that we that comes more naturally to us in this political moment are kind of like a, a neoliberal take on voice, like on voice as kind of like almost like a, a search for an authentic voice or like there's there's that part. There is even like when, you know, in your reference to kind of the multiple tragedies that, that people face and like think about, um, let's say, the, the, the idea of resilience, which which now like scholars from the Middle East are kind of completely rejecting because it's it somehow exceptionalizes the struggles of people there as if you know they they have resilience in their genes while while it is more more about like actually su- surviving and you know like um, kind of navigate navigating multiple uh, multiple risks and precarities and and navigating a really difficult difficult life basically and you know kind of Holding on to the to, to moments of, of joy and um, and and happiness, like I'm I'm reminded, you know, of the of the poem by uh, by a colleague, uh, uh, Rafif, um, in uh, who says like we teach people how to live in relation to to Palestinians, which you know is kind of uh, like there is there is like there's an insistence to to live in in that sense, 
but we can't we also like cannot escape thinking about structures of of power as as you mentioned um so while while like while kind of recognizing i think the um like the, the ability of people to 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 navigate these like these multiple layers of of tragedies um there's also like structural ways that that basically de- determine how we how they talk about it as as well and i i think if you if you listen like if you listen to to what syrians what syrians say like the, the pain is just is just so much that oftentimes you know like people are unable to actually articulate the, what what they're what they're feeling like for, for me being in the west being in a in the academy i i think like one one way to kind of think about voice is not to overuse words like trauma like you know like this also kind of like words from from psychology that have become so commonplace in in everyday language in the academy that i think like the overuse of certain words also disempower people because you know you're taking away the the language that is meant for actually traumatized people but by overusing terms we also kind of disarm the force behind behind words so it is to think about you know our our positions and and think about voice in relation to power structures i would say thank you um so gregory jackson is asking how will the earthquake shape the politics of the upcoming election? Will Erdogan get "quote unquote" credit for leading in a crisis while suppressing other actors, or will he get the blame again? Between quotes, and Fatima Sadigi is asking about the role of external contractors and their role in the increase of the disease, including the lack of accountability and transparency in engineering the infrastructure, something that has been talked about since day one in different ways and. Uh, different levels. And Mariam Zishan Kukar is asking about how we can address the geopolitical implications of government's neglect or failure to adequately respond to natural disasters, particularly in vulnerable or politically marginalized communities. I want to also hear your notes about what can the global community do uh, when it comes to offering humanitarian aid to the region if the state is such an aggressive actor in managing that received aid? First question is mainly about the Turkish local politics concerning Erdogan. I mean, I'm not on the ground, so I don't have like a a lot of insider knowledge into the Turkey's, the way local politics is coming across. But from what I hear, I do see that um, the government is getting a lot, lot of blame. If I'm wrong, please Feel free to correct me, Sertaj, or those who are in were engaged in the local grounds and know more than I do. And perhaps this is not a good sign for him. But again, and as I said, from my uh, for what I gathered in the long run impact of Pakistani politics, how it changed, all the actors that were engaged at the time were failing to provide support. And therefore, they did amass a lot of blame and were were eventually somehow voted out or pushed out. Thank you. So on the third or the fourth day of the earthquake, Ardan went on the TV and then he started scolding people. 
the victims of the earthquake, just with such an aggressive, in an aggressive posture. And so that was the first official state government speech and directed at the victims while they were still like under the rubbles trying to be saved and there were still like living people screaming from under the rubbles. That was cruel, harsh and violent. And the oppositional party took a totally different kind of approach and he went to the earthquake zone and he was just, you know, with people from the pro-Kurdish party. He had a very soft speech, like embracing people, trying to support them. So that set a kind of, you know, polarized you know, the political discourses about the earthquake itself, the victims uh, of the, for the victims of the earthquake, how these two parties are going to approach. And uh, so that, that speech itself made Erdogan even more, you know, undesired among many, because he is blamed for causing this disaster, because his whole economic agenda, neoliberal economic agenda has been based on construction business. So he made all these leases with uh, contractors, with with, uh, with the architects, with the large companies, not necessarily follow the measures that were introduced legally after the 1999 earthquake. So when all these buildings collapsed, so much, you know, Corruption also emerged on the surface. People just, you know, collected material from the buildings and then saw that actually they were not built according to the earthquake prevention measures. And all this corrupt economy, just after its emergence in in the face of this devastation, Erdogan was the person who signed all these agreements. So in a way, now he totally lost loss of support. And Adiyaman, for instance, I can speak more intimately about Adiyaman because I, I spent some time there with this feminist organization. Adiyaman was actually Erdogan's representatives are ruling the Adiyaman. So now I'll, he came to Adiyaman while we were there. Of course, we didn't see him in person then, but the, all day everybody was just, you know, talking about this visit and cursing because he asked for a certain kind of forgiveness Helalik. i don't know how to translate this into english it's an islamic you know gesture to ask for uh, some kind of you know forgiveness usually people ask for it at the moment of death whether you are giving your forgiveness to this person to the deceased and people just you know collectively you know chant yeah we give our forgiveness to this person so that's a moment of like ultimate forgiveness so he was asking for forgiveness uh, from people then that discords circulated among people. Of, we, are, we are not going to give him any kind of forgiveness. We're going to give him hell. We're going to give him cures. It totally unleashed this, you know, frustration, disappointment, anger, rage directed against the government itself. So all these feelings are now shaping up the political space in Turkey. So it's not an easy answer, this or that black and white kind of, you know, uh, answer I have for your question. But it's also a moment of possibility of a political hope. Like all these coalitions are also emerging in the face of this aggressive state attitude and in the absence of the state, especially in the first week of the disaster. And so civil society organizations, political parties, other, you know, uh, activist groups started mobilizing their own resources and their own connections. And they were trying to get to the earthquake zone 
and they become more interaction with each other. So it is a devastation, yet at the same time, it's another moment of crisis that just, you know, gives birth to new kind of, you know, formations of political collaboration and coalition. And uh, so that's what I find the most interesting, even beyond elections themselves for me. That's the, the, how the streets is shaping up, how the community is shaping up in terms of this that alternative political agendas and how these political agendas are speaking to each other in this very moment. Moment, I find it very hopeful that I hope that I had lost about the politics in Turkey in a while, but now mm-hmm. the history is, itself is so, you know, always surprising. So again, being in the earthquake zone, interacting with all these other organizations, seeing the kind of, you know, empowerment people are just, you know, you know creating all together was very inspiring. And Dr. Algazi. Um, yeah, like I'm, I'm not going to kind of add, uh, add anything, but I would just say like for... Like the least we can do is to kind of uh, add, you know, maybe for for listeners as well. I know, like probably many of us already donated uh, money, but like in in Syria, even you know, there there isn't like the even capacity for for many Syrians to get involved, and you know, we can't really speak of like uh, or organizations that are dealing with the situation and. As, as part of a civil society. But I think like particular Syrian-led groups um, like Mulham Team, for example, um, like a kind of a rescue and aid uh, group and the White Helmets as well, like they are, they're really like kind of um, uh, ho- holding the, the you, you feel almost like they're holding the foundations of, um, of what hopeful politics could emerge at least in in um, in rescuing people, like literally saving lives and kind of involving Syrians in the in the um, aid effort as well. So I think they're worthy of our support. Thank you, thank you, everyone. I have to say, I think I met with friends and colleagues in London a couple of times uh, in the last one month. Every time we have, the, aside from doing an intellectual exchange, our priority wasn't that. Our priority usually is just having that touch, sharing our intellectual-minded pain, I suppose, which is exactly how I'm feeling, which is why it's a little bit difficult to wrap up this conversation. Uh, but thank you very much for your time. Thank you very much for being part of this conversation and for your insights. I hope there won't be too many emergent issues for the Tahayid team to continue podcast series. But when there is something, we have a team to put things together and, and hopefully to change the genre of any conversation in the aftermath of such incidents. Yes, thank you very much. Thank you. Oh, thank you. Thank you for everyone. Thank you very much.